listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. If secession is a legitimate response to political oppression, then what would stop a state from seceding from the Confederacy? Or for that matter, a county from a Confederate state? According to legend, that's what happened in Jones County, Mississippi in 1863. But as with so many legends, behind it there are various complex and fascinating truths. We'll find out about them and more from our guest, Professor Victoria E. Bynum, author of The Free State of Jones, Mississippi's Longest Civil War, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Everyone faces conflict at home, at work, in the community, in the world. Fix Your Conflicts is a show about how to fix those conflicts with practical tips and techniques. Doug Knoll brings to the Internet airwaves the first of its kind, a show that teaches peaceful resolution to life's daily battles. That's Fix Your Conflicts with Doug Knoll, broadcasting live every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Studio A. Marissa, are you ready yet? I know you can hear me. You are not missing school again. Marissa! You trying to be a nobody or something? Let's go! Alright then. Hit it. I know you can hear this. Hey guys, move closer. Girl, I am not leaving. Hey, whatever it takes, don't let your friends drop out. A real friend can make all the difference. Cut that noise, yo! I'm coming! Took you long enough. Thanks for the help, guys. For more ways to help, go to OperationGraduation.com. A public service message from the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today from the home office, not on campus, but in Greenville, North Carolina, home of East Carolina University. And although I take the university's name in vain, I'm not speaking for them, nor do they do so for me. Uh, once again, Civil War Talk Radio is on its own. The uh, show last week was a rerun for those who were listening live as it was spring break here in Greenville, and I discovered as acting chair, spring break is no break at all. There's just more paperwork to do, but it was good to be back, uh, back in the saddle again this past week and back here on Civil War Talk Radio today. Unfortunately, in what seems to be a annual recurring event on this show, there's always a beautiful spring day when I come down with some notorious bug. Uh, last year, uh, the hardy fans of the show will remember, I believe it was the interview with, uh, on, uh, about the book about John Basil Turchin in the sack of Athens, Alabama, uh, a very interesting book written by, like so many Civil War books, by a, a lawyer. 
uh, dealing with an issue of uh, civilians and war and limits of war and total war and all kinds of worthwhile things to talk about. And I was so sick that uh, my voice was just dreadful to listen to. I, I apologize uh, once again for those who sat through that. Uh, I've listened to it uh, once on the archives, and it's really, uh, uh, really itself a violation of the laws of war to ask anyone to listen to to me in the condition I was in that day. This year, not nearly sounding so bad, but feeling not not the very best. Uh, but nonetheless, we will soldier on, and uh, especially because of the the extremely interesting topic today, I did not want to miss that. Before we jump into that. Uh, Self-promotion continues with the Did Lincoln Own Slaves and Other Frequently Asked Questions About Abraham Lincoln World Tour continuing. Uh, the next stop is in Fort Branch, North Carolina on April 5th. I'm not sure where Fort Branch is, uh, somewhere north of Greenville, around Rocky Mount perhaps, but apparently they have some preserved Confederate earthworks above uh, uh, the river, uh, maybe the Roanoke River where the, the Ram Albemarle was being uh, constructed, and uh, these these earthworks are apparently on private land, but are being preserved nonetheless. And I will be up there speaking on Saturday, April fifth, that afternoon at some unknown time. If you're in the, the eastern North Carolina, southern Virginia area, send me an email, and I'll give you more details about what that will be all about. Uh, I'll be in Gettysburg in June for the annual uh, Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. If you can get into that, it's always sold out. It is a fabulous week. I'll be there just for one day this time. Uh, but it is uh, a really amazing program, always worth going to. And uh, in mid-July in Richmond, I will be speaking to a teacher's program there, not a public program. So uh, I'll just be selling books to teachers, not to everybody else. But enough about that. Let us move on to today's subject. Our guest uh, is uh, Professor Victoria Bynum from uh, Texas State University. Uh, Professor Bynum, are you there? Yes, I am. Wonderful. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, may you, I Ron. call you Vicki? Yes, we've I was going to say that. Please call me Vicki. It'll be a lot more comfortable. <laughs> and please call me Jerry. We, we've, we've written to each other a few times. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and we we had uh, essays in uh, Aaron Sheehan Dean's very. That's right. Yeah, struggle book. for a vast future. Yeah, we're both in there. Looking, you're looking at the ranks, and I'm looking at the home front. <laughs> exactly. So our, our paths cross as happens in this field without uh, having had the, the good fortune to meet yet. But I'm hoping that will change. Um, in this public forum, I will apply the uh, the screws of peer pressure to uh, hope that you'll consider the offer from East Carolina University to come visit us next uh, spring. Well, I'm excited about the off uh, the offer, and I am uh, definitely considering it. So uh, uh, there's a really good chance of that. Now that would be wonderful. Yeah. For uh, East Carolina University uh, has various visiting chairs, and one of them is the the Witchard Chair, and the Women's Studies Department uh, next year has offered to. Uh, 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 to you, Vicki, has offered this this chair, and with the uh, very enthusiastic assent of the history department, we're delighted uh, uh, that you were uh, named, and, and we hope that will work out. But well, I, I certainly hope so. I just would, I love the idea of an opportunity to come back to North Carolina because, as you know, my my first book on ruling women was about North Carolina, so I lived a year uh, in Durham in the whole research triangle area, and uh, just enjoyed it so much. So they, it would be a, it, it would be a wonderful opportunity for me if this all works out. Well, that would be great. What? Uh, how did you get from North Carolina to Texas? 
Uh, well, I was actually going to college at the University of California. So first I, had to, I went to North Carolina to do my research, went back to, to the University of California. And then just in looking for uh, positions like everyone does when they get out there, I wasn't finished with my dissertation yet, but I wanted to, um, to start teaching and getting work and getting university uh, affiliations. And I ended up at what was then Southwest Texas State University. And I actually started out in a three-year position, and uh, I'm uh, another historian who I knew from known from an earlier period of time in graduate school. Also got a uh, position there, and we ended up marrying each other, Dr. Greg Andrews and I. And so uh, here we are at Texas State University, both of us uh, employed in the same department, which is one of those happy results that doesn't always come about for historians. It, it so. really doesn't. We had uh, I had Jonathan Saris on the program last year. He's written a fine book on. Uh, uh, the, the war in North Georgia, among uh, looking at two Confederate counties there, and I, I think you may know Jonathan. I do. I know both Jonathan and, and and his wife Karen Zipf, and I know. Yeah, they are a good example of the problems of trying to pull together two careers and still have a life together in the same it's, space. It's a challenge. Karen is, of course, in our department here at East Carolina, and uh, they they live here in Greenville. But Jonathan has quite a long commute up to. Uh, uh, I think it's North Carolina Wesleyan where he's teaching. Yeah, that's so right. I think that's 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 what I heard. I haven't seen him in a few years, uh, but I used to see them regularly at the uh, Southern Historical Association, and always talking about, "Are you two living any closer together yet?" <laughs> <laughs> well, I was smart enough or uh, fortunate enough to uh, fall in with a non-academic uh, uh, woman, and we've been been able to stay together uh, as a result of that. Yeah. Uh, Although the drawback is she does not believe my stories sometimes. Uh, yeah, yeah, that is one thing there. Sometimes you feel like you have that that's kind of a compartmentalized part of your life when you're with a, a non-academic. <laughs> that's right. It, it, it's so different. Well, you mentioned you wrote about women in the Old South, and, and uh, time permitting, I'd like to ask you about that. But I want to jump in with your more recent book, sure. uh, which I mentioned in the introduction, uh, called The Free State of Jones. This is one of those stories that you you find in books, uh, sort sort of quick knockoff books about weird and wonderful Civil War facts. Uh, That's right. The Confederacy right. secedes, but a county secedes from Mississippi. Um, did they really do that? Uh, I have never found any hard evidence that they did do it, and several of the members of the of the band that comprised the so-called Free State of Jones, it was actually the Knight Company. They called themselves after their captain, Newton Knight. Uh, as far as drawing up some uh, formal document or constitution that said we are seceding from uh, the state of Mississippi because we're seceding from the Confederacy, I don't, I, I don't think anyone's ever going to find that. But in essence, they did, they did refuse to be a part of the Confederacy, and they did it on the grounds that they had sent a delegate up to the state convention who had been elected on the basis that he would vote against secession. And so their position more was, and Newt Knight actually said this in, in the early 1920s when he was interviewed as a very old man, that the way we saw it was that we had never seceded from the Union, period. So, you know, they were doing what they did, but we were, we were still in the Union because we had never left it. He, he really took the position that a county itself could stay within the Union regardless of what the state decided to do. If that county's delegate, you know, and unfortunately the delegate caved in and voted for secession on, I think it was the third vote. 
so, you know, they basically did a lot of protesting of him when he came back because, to their minds, he had turned against the voters, and he had uh, basically double-crossed the voters, and so they didn't take his vote seriously, <laughs> the one, the secession vote. So it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than, than the, the more, you know, dramatic idea that they actually did draw up some sort of uh, constitution for themselves and, and uh, you know, acts of secession from the Confederacy. I don't think that ever actually happened, and uh, none of the none of the surviving members who were asked about it into the 20th century seem willing to say that that had ever happened. Well, but if if they decided that they were non-secessionists, that they they were still loyal to the Union because their delegate didn't vote the right way, um, you know, there were close votes in other states, in Tennessee certainly, uh, as well as Mississippi, where. You know, delegates voted against secession, but we don't have stories like this from other states. What was there anything pr- particular about Jones County that you found that, that would make them more liable to act as they did? I think there are a combination of factors. I mean, there are other free states like the free state of Winston and Alabama, and there are you know other areas where you you just find uh, incredible resistance to the Confederacy right there in the North Carolina Piedmont. I certainly found that to be the case. But having said that, I think you are right that there is still something unique about this free state of Jones. They did basically, this group of, of men and their families, they did really manage to take over the county. And I think that's where the image of them being an independent uh, free state, uh, and free state is actually a phrase that came about before the Civil War, at least that's my understanding. But they used that phrase because it did seem to fit the fact that they did take over the county. And so I think there are several things going on there that, that while they might not be unique to, to Jones County, it's the combination of factors. You know, they're isolated from the, the planter-dominated uh, areas of the state. This is the Piney Woods. Uh, there are incredibly strong family networks that cross over slaveholding, non-slaveholding lines. One of the most important members of the Knight Band was actually the son-in-law of the very delegate who caved in and voted for secession. And this son-in-law, he was married to the daughter of that delegate, he just remained one of the firmest um, uh, supporters of the free state, of the night band, right to the end, even though he remained married to the daughter. So you've got some really interesting family connections that cross over uh, union and anti-union, and this is where I think something that I would call just the strength of, of certain personalities also becomes really important. Newt Knight had a very strong personality. Uh, Jasper Collins, who was the son-in-law of the delegate, had an equally strong personality and I think could have just as equally been the leader of the band. And the Collins family that Jasper Collins represented is just, I mean, they are related to virtually, uh, it, well, at least half of the members of the band are somehow related to this Collins family, more than are related to Newt Knight. And then you take that into the community. You've got uh, a community where, with these strong kinship networks, these strong personalities taking these uh, very forceful stands. The Collins family, by the way, were, were, were probably the strongest unionists in the county as well. I mean, they, they had a, a really, they had probably the most easily definable uh, ideological position against secession that you'll ever find in the county. And I think Newt Knight actually came to his unionism more gradually and and was influenced very much by unionists such as as Jasper Collins. So um, 
I'm trying to think what other factors I would say. Of course, slaveholding was very low in the county, and that's part of their isolation from the, the planter area. Uh, and even when you did have the few large planters that you did have in Jones County, tended to be against secession. It was a strongly anti-secession region to begin with. And so even those who, who do support the, the, uh, the Confederacy once secession is achieved, uh, that support is never really deep. And I think that that, that really allows the ardent unionists to be, to be really stronger than ever. Now, th- this region you mentioned, they're, they're in the southeastern part of Mississippi. That's right, yes. So they're, they're close to the Alabama line well yeah they're they're yes yeah mobile is one of their main areas of of trade you know when they they take their products and uh, they're down there in that southeastern portion yeah the leaf river sort of bounds them i see if, if we could draw out a sort of narrative here the uh the, the secession uh in, in quotation marks of, of uh, the county doesn't take place immediately uh at, at in 1861 does it no it does not no how, how does that play out well, at first you have um, virt- most of the, I think virtually every member of the night band, and this is our band of deserters, uh, who declare themselves as being an ad hoc member of the Union Army. They never manage to be mustered in, but that's their claim is that they're, they're trying to be mustered in. Uh, they're, they're not formed until late 1863. And at first all of them join Confederate units. And this has often been used to argue that that, this, that there really was not any ideological opposition to secession, but uh, I think that, that what you have going on there is a very common belief that the war will be over soon, uh, a belief that um, if you go into a, a Confederate Union with a unit with your relatives and your friends, it'll be a lot better than waiting. Um, and, of course, conscript laws are passed, and they, they don't want to be subject to arrest. So most of them don't join until after uh, conscription begins in, in 1862. A few of them volunteer early, and, uh, and Newton Knight is one of those, actually, who volunteered and joined the service early. So what happens is a process where once you begin to have uh, the, the more serious battles, Iuka and Corinth and, very dramatically, Vicksburg, uh, you see the really shallow roots of support for the Confederacy. And you, you I mean, desertion begins uh, after Iuka and Corinth among most of the men who joined the night band. It's really accelerated by Vicksburg. Uh, and then, of course, you do get uh, a number of men who just are war-weary, and the, night, and the night band is there to be a part of. And in my research, I wasn't able to find any kind of uh, certain unionist sentiment uh, among them. But uh, by doing really in-depth genealogical research, I was able to link virtually all of the men who joined the Knight Company and many of the family members, wives and daughters who supported them, with a support for unionism or at least an opposition to secession that preceded uh, their having reluctantly joined the Confederacy. So it, it does move gradually, and it really, uh, the, the turning against the Confederacy really reaches its height when one of the um, more elite members of society, Amos McLemore, is made uh, a leader of a, of, of, of a, of a group, uh, a military group that is uh, designated as having the responsibility of, of getting stragglers and deserters, and he starts to aggressively try to find them and force them back into the service, and he's murdered. Most people believe that he was murdered by, by Newt Knight and a couple of accomplices, and that really is the trigger event for the formation of the night band. That's really where you begin to get what we would call an inner civil war there, when you've got, um, you know, basically home guard soldiers being uh, shot 
by uh, deserters and deserters being shot by the home guard as well. I mean, it was it, there was mutual uh, massacre going on here between the two groups, but it only increased ultimately uh, the strength of the night band. Their numbers grew. They, they were very well organized and very well armed, and uh, so their strength and their power really grew over time. So by 1864, we really do have a, a, a civil war within a civil war brewing here. We're going to take a, a short break now. We will come back in just a moment. We're talking today with Victoria Bynum of Texas State University, uh, talking right now about her book, The Free State of Jones, Mississippi's Longest Civil War. And we'll talk some more when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> <laughs> 